Yeah, it was kind of vaguely coming in, but not. Yeah, I heard oh, it maybe it was just in the back. Oh, it's end. doing that. It, Discord has this new uh, noise suppression thing that is really good for voice, but if you're trying to play other stuff through the channel, it doesn't really work. Let me so see. So what I'm hearing you say is that we could be watching YouTube videos while we're talking and no. you wouldn't hear them. No, that's not what I'm saying remotely. Oh. Sounds like that's exactly what you're saying. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between what you're saying and what we're hearing? Um, so uh, the crisp noise suppression is designed to recognize human voices. So if you were if you were watching YouTube videos that only had sounds that were not human voices in them, then maybe oh, maybe like you chickens, could. Okay. Maybe chickens. Yeah, chickens. Maybe yeah. If you um, were surrounded, listen. If you were surrounded by chickens, and I'm saying that because I think we all should be right now. We should. Right. Um, that probably wouldn't negatively impact the quality of the Discord call. <laughs> oh, okay. Welcome to good-looking people in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. It's week seven, and we're up to page 172. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with my fellow rereader, Brianna. Hello. And we're joined over Discord by my mom, Norma. Hello. And by our friend, Vinny. Hi. Hi. This reading kind of broke down into, like, Two or three chunks. My takeaway from the big chunk about James O and his father, mm -hmm. I thought it had some similarities to um, the USS Millicent, what's her name? Kent? Mm, Millicent oh, Kent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. I felt I had some similar feelings when I read mm. that. Say so more that, about that. That might continue that, I don't know what that theme is, bad parenting. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yucky parenting, icky parenting, beyond bad. Icky. It's interesting that you say that because I was reminded of the conversationalist. Mm. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With James Owen Hal. Yeah. Because one person is doing a lot of the talking. Yes. And mm -hmm. the other much younger person is being addressed as if they're an adult, but right. yeah, not but truly. Right. Right. Yeah, even um, in terms of like speech patterns and everything, I'm I picked up on some similarity between yeah. um, that that chunk with young James O and yeah. the the conversationalist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also think this this chunk that we read this time also gives more um, intriguing glimpses into the mysterious Mario. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I I do think uh, yeah we get a lot more about Mario. We also get a lot more about like Incandenza family lineage or yeah. or just kind of the inheritance of family problems through the generations. Right. Um, I think though that maybe we should maybe we should just take our usual tactic of like going through this chronologically. Um, yeah. Sure. So that means that we start out with. Uh, 
Pemulus and is it Axford? Pemulus and Axford yes. selling yeah. urine. <laughs> mm-hmm. They are really, uh, they are really little businessmen, aren't they? They are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the hot dog vendors container thing that they wear. Uh, yeah. It was so blatant. I I kept thinking. So these these testers come in from outside. Mm-hmm. They're not from Enfield, right? They're from they're right. from the tennis organization, the youth right. tennis. And it's apparent that Enfield Tennis Academy could care less whether their tennis players are using drugs because yeah, I, because I they're out there selling. Too. I mean, it's so blatant. Right. So like the. Like, the, if you the, were there, you would say, what do they have in that hot dog bin right, thing? Right, what are, what are the, they doing? Why are they wearing right. these funny hats? Oh, they're yeah. selling clean urine. Yeah, oh, why are okay. they yelling yeah, clinically sterile <laughs> urine, piping yeah. hot? Yeah. yeah. I was a little confused by that at first because yeah. I was thinking, like, this is so blatant. Uh, it but is. I do think that, that your read of it makes sense. Like, that's just one or maybe two people who are there from the ONANTA. Right. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's conceivable that since they're otherwise occupied, they could maybe not be aware of this going oh, yeah, on. I but, don't... but clearly, if ETA staff or administration had any interest in shutting this down, they right. they easily could find out about it and stop it from happening, right. but they they seem to like. You know, it does it does make you wonder a little bit about uh, sports uh, organizations now. I mean, the big overarching organizational structure uh, has an interest in doing drug testing and catching people that are not abiding by the the rules. Mm-hmm. But it does make you wonder. I mean, when athletes get caught especially more blatant things like, Oh, like the, uh, tour de France, some of the stuff yeah. that's gone on there. Yeah. Bicycle mm-hmm. racing kind of have in to general, think, like, come on, really their team, the coaching staff, they really don't have a clue. Really? Are you sure? It kind of, it kind of yeah. made me wonder if it's kind of a widespread thing or colleges that get in trouble with Oh, it might be drugs, but it might also be recruitment, weird recruitment uh, violations and things like that. The smaller organization, the local organization, maybe knows a little bit about what's going on. Or they really suspect it, and they're just choosing not to look and see. Well, yeah. Like, and if we I don't think look that's... and see, like if we don't look and if we don't confront them about their their money making right. uh, opportunity here, then we don't. Then we can say that we don't know that it's going right. on. Right. Yeah. And, and it's in their it's in know. their best interests to not find out that this is right. going on. Right. Mm-hmm. We also learn more about Pemulus here. Yeah, yeah. we get a, we get more he of a peek a... into Pemulus's life, and he's a lot more interesting than I think I gave him credit for initially. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's not really there for the tennis either. He's there because he has a scholarship, right? And it gets him out right. of his crummy neighborhood. But really, right. his strengths are math and math and hard sciences. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was funny because my read on him initially, maybe partly is just the yachting cap, but my read on him initially was that he was like from a wealthy family who uh-huh. were paying to to get him off their hands for a while. Right. It's um, definitely mm-hmm. the yachting cap. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely the yachting cap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but he actually, you know, when I read it, I 
I thought he also, he has the scholarship, the James O. Incandenza scholarship. Yes. At the, uh, and, and I felt like, and he has the access to James O.'s lenses and equipment and everything. And I actually thought that in a way his story was similar to James O., who also was not that enamored with tennis, but it was right. just as a way out of the life that they have. Yeah. Like you have to put up with the tennis. But the same token, then why does James O. set up the Enfield Tennis Academy in the first place? I Good mean, we question. could get super Freudian with it and say that he just has long-standing unresolved daddy issues and, and he's trying to, like, make good on the disappointments of his father. Or maybe it's a cover for his science and film work. I mean, <laughs> that could be his day job, maybe, running a school tennis well, but academy. He doesn't, he doesn't need a day job, though. He, he, he's perhaps the most success like like the most successful physicist and inventor in contemporary in the contemporary world right so he doesn't he doesn't need the tennis academy for any I reason think, i think it is because of his dad but kind of in a weird way it's like because of the weird relationship that he had with his dad clearly couldn't talk to his dad either he has the same issues with his sons that his mm -hmm. father and he had, they, it's kind of a yeah. repeating it, and that he doesn't know what to do with them. He doesn't know how to relate to his own children, so he thinks, well, they could play tennis. Let's yeah. start a tennis yeah. school. Do tennis to <laughs> them the way my dad <laughs> yeah, did tennis, tennis to me. Because, yeah. because at least that's something that we share then. We share the yeah. tennis, well, right, we because we can't share anything else. There are only, what, three options. Tennis, physics, and film. Right. <laughs> yeah, That's those right. are the three career paths. Right. right. And he would rather have jock sons than physicists sons? I think of it more as like, well, it keeps them busy. <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It keeps them busy. intense study. <laughs> mm -hmm. I feel like it's also, you know, as much as it's about um, his dad and... Uh, living up to his dad's expectations and everything. I also feel like it's about teaching the opposite of what his dad believed for tennis. Mm. Oh. And basically, like, in a way, getting revenge against his dad uh, by teaching that tennis is nothing but chaos and disorder. Mm. Oh, that is really True. interesting. That is interesting. <laughs> yeah. And his father, you know, his father is all about you have to feel it, you have to touch it, you have to... Hold it, and the, it's all it's yeah. It's all about efficiency like, and grace. Like, this is like weirdly just sexual. keep drilling, mm -hmm. just keep doing it. Oh, repetition, just because you don't feel it until you've repeated it a million times. Not this right, like, yeah. Intuitive kind of you. You just have it within you, and you have to pull it out. Where at Enfield, they do much more just over and over and over and over and over. Like you have to beat it into yourself kind of, it's not just there. You have to, you have to put all of that inside of you in order to play. Mm -hmm. We're kind of getting a little ahead of ourselves here. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. so there's, 
Yeah, it's hard. This is hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we could, the, the, should we talk more about Pemulus? Or well, the, even before we pemulus get to the and, section that describes Pemulus, there's some other stuff that I want to mention. Just little highlights that I think are fun or interesting or maybe uh -huh. relevant sure. to us. So one is that in that first section where they're talking specifically about this this month's urine sales racket, right, uh, right. they mention that Ennett House residents do custodial right, work at right. Enfield. Right. Yeah, um, that they're the ones emptying the trash cans into the dumpsters, and right. so there's there's that connection that I was looking for. I think exactly. that like it really like, cements that they're not just geographically in the same place, but there is some sort of cross pollination of people between yes. them. It makes the structuring of the book make more sense to me to know that these characters cross paths, whether or not they acknowledge each other's existence. Right. That's a whole other can of beans, but right, they may yeah. have seen each other. They may yeah. have bumped and, into each other, and and yeah, like a hundred and a, a hundred some pages into this book, I'm I'm okay with that being the reason that we're learning about both these sets of people. Uh, one other thing that's very interesting is that we learned that uh, Pemulus and Hal and Axford own a restored tow truck. A tow truck they'd chipped in on with Hal and Jim Struck and another oh, okay. guy who's since graduated ETA oh, and okay. now yeah. plays for Pepperdine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's funny because it sounds like a lot of what this truck does is like general public service to ETA students that the school should probably be providing on its own. <laughs> uh, like like hauling cars out of the snow and right that kind of thing. They also uh, use it to set up the what do they call the, it? The, the lung, lung the, yeah, which is like the the bubble, right? Over yeah, the, the, inflatable, the inflatable enclosure. Thing over the one of the reasons I like this is because they mentioned that they have they've painted it in Enfield's colors and <laughs> and they have the motto on the door, right? They have the motto on the door, and they <laughs> yeah, also the old have, motto, the old the motto. old motto <laughs> that, that CT has done away with, right. uh, and, and they also have the. Uh, the Onan heraldic uh, insignia, which is described here, I really like this description, as a snarling full-front <laughs> eagle with a broom and can of disinfectant in one claw and a maple leaf in the other, and wearing a sombrero and appearing to have about half-eaten a swatch of star-studded cloth. Yeah. <laughs> what is that anyway? I was imagining that the eagle had, like, eaten the American flag and yes. just a little yes. bit of the blue part was still yeah. sticking out of its yeah. mouth. Right. That was yeah. my understanding. Me too. Me yeah. too. Uh, which is a fa fantastic image, and I love it, it very much. Yeah. But what is the... Maybe this is a silly question, but what is the significance of the sombrero? Because we don't hear a whole lot about... Mexico. And if you're talking North American nations, wouldn't it include Mexico? Right. It would, yeah. I, I, believe that, I believe that Onan does include Mexico, but we have heard very, very little about it. And it We've seems to be almost an, a non-issue, which but I am curious got, about. You've got Canada, because you've got the maple leaf. And you've got, right. so maybe... And the cleaning the products stripes, are America. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't know what the cleaning products are. The cleaning products could be the toxicity of the uh, right? concavity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It could be. This is also, though, where we hear about Mario and his con his work with his dad's stuff. Don't we do yes. hear that? In, yes. And yes. Yes. Is, yeah. Camulus and, well, for, the first question that comes up is just a practical question for me when they talk about... You know the 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 clean urine sales uh, business mm -hmm. that they run, and that they they get the 
they get the little kids and Mario to get to collect the empty Visine bottles by making it a a competition. And they say that Mario is really good at it. Mm -hmm. But my question is, how in the world would Mario be able to climb in and out of a dumpster? I'm sure, I'm sure that Pemulus just hurls him in there. You think? That sounds <laughs> or just, plausible. Or just tips him over the edge. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> Mario... In, not, 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 in a, not in an unfriendly just, way. Right. No, a friendly tipping. Into Yeats the dumpster. Him into yeah. the dumpster. But yeah, I, I think Mario would be able to clamber up a dumpster. Would he? Yeah. I, well, I don't know. Maybe. I, I, he seems very resourceful. Maybe he'd build himself a little step stool out of boxes or something. I don't know. Right, yeah. But, and to dig through the trash and yeah. and pick yeah, up sure. these little bottles. Really? Mario? He's with got, his, I mean, we, d- we don't know a lot. With his little claw-like hands and yeah, his sure. little... <laughs> he seems very capable. I mean, I, okay. I, think that, I think that that's one of the things that happens to Mario is that he's underestimated by a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But mm. when he's on and his yeah. own, he, he, and he yeah. manages just fine. Yeah, when they talk about him filming, he's out there mm-hmm. filming the urine sales. Yes. In this scene. Mm-hmm. And he yes. has to have, he has a head mounted camera and yes. uh, some kind yes. of foot treadle to yeah. operate things. So he's not yeah. so, using his hands to do that, to no. do no. filming. No, well, the camera's probably heavy. GoPro. Right. Yeah. Well, here, so I, wow. I do want to talk about this a little bit. He's got this thing that's mentioned a couple times before called a thoracic police lock. Yeah. So it's just what this, is like, that? Uh, so a police lock is like a telescoping metal pole. Uh, so I'm assuming that that's mounted to his chest and he can extend it out oh, and use it to prop okay. himself up so he doesn't fall <laughs> over. That's really um, sad, and the, but and clever. Then the, yeah, and, and then the treadle would be like a, almost like a sewing machine pedal, I think, right. down at the bottom that he would use as a start-stop trigger for the camera. Uh-huh. Hmm. I'm kind of fascinated by this camera, and I think it gets discussed in more detail later, so I want to, I'll save some of this analysis for then. It's very specifically named as a Bolex camera. Uh-huh. Um, oh. Yes. Vinny, did yes. you ever use Bolexes? I don't think so, no. We use them in our film program, and I used them a little bit at MCAT. I'm uploading a picture now to the chat. Mm-hmm. So it's a... a the Bolex that I'm familiar with is a this like, boy. it's, well, it's, it's big. It's big compared to a digital camera. And it's like a well, hand it's cranked. Tall. Yes. It's a weird shape. It's a hand cranked clockwork 16 millimeter camera. They're made in Switzerland or they were in the past. I've imagined this being like mounted to it, like attached to a helmet that he's wearing on his head or on the, like on the top right? of his, his head. I mean, it's, it's really unusual. It's also unusual to imagine a Bolex being used in the context of like high definition digital film production, which it's very clear, like that's what cartridges are. They're high definition right. digital video. Yeah. Um, so there, there is another thing and I'm, I'm not sure how much this counts, but there was for a couple years, a thing called a digital Bolex. This oh, is maybe wow. a that more convincing more... thing. If you took the handle off, I could see that right. being mounted pretty streamlined on, on the top of a helmet or something. Yeah. Um, I, I say that it, I'm not sure that it counts because it was made by an independent company that licensed the name Bolex. The actual Bolex oh. company doesn't exist anymore. Because the first one, the more complex one, the real Bolex, it's hard to imagine how you would operate it with a foot 
Well, well, if it's just a if it's just a go stop switch, those do exist. Like you, you you can wire, you can wire. But but is that all you need to do to film with that? Just a go stop. Yeah, it's tough to know what exactly he's imagining here because this original Bolex does need to be wound. You have to crank it like a like you're winding a clock almost. Yeah. Um. You you have to set the aperture and and. pick your lens and do right. all that stuff manually based on switches complex. and dials. I imagine in that the, what he's imagining here is a, a version of a camera that's very similar to this original, but probably smaller and lighter, maybe a different shape. And with the ability to set those controls remotely and electronically, I really am fascinated by Mario's filmmaking pursuits. Uh, yes, he it- does seem... He does seem very much in the vein of like his father's more experimental work. Right. These conceptual yeah. film cartridges that in he's fact, making. They say Pemulus doesn't mind that he's filming this, the urine sales, because the concept is so out there that no one's going to ever watch it anyway. Well, he also says that he knows that when he asks Mario, Mario will superimpose undulating flesh colored oh, right. squares he, he, over their faces oh, yeah. and the faces of their clients. He blocks out the faces, but yeah, he yeah. says yeah. They, they mention Mario's notoriously fond of undulating flesh-colored squares and will jump at any opportunity to edit them in over people's faces. Right. Yeah. You really feel like like Mario is continuing his father's work somehow. Yeah, no, that's the thought that I had as well. And that, in fact, that. as we learn more about Pemulus and his science genius and math genius. The two of them together are very, it's like they're really interested in what James O was working on and maybe, maybe trying to pick up from where he left off. Yeah. I think that seems more likely than Mario just simply as an artist for art's sake. Right. I think that he is an artist, but I think that perhaps he's an artist because his father was. Yeah. And I mean, I think you could say the same thing about like Hal and tennis. Like, I don't, oh, yeah. I don't think Hal plays tennis because it just occurred to him one day that he wanted to do it. He plays tennis or because that he his, likes it. Yeah, his father right. and his grandfather played tennis. Yeah. Um, and, also, and in some ways, I think we we th- there's like this theme, at least with the tennis playing. There's this theme of fathers being surpassed by their sons. James O is a better tennis player than his father was. I think we've established that. And Hal and Oren are better tennis players than James O was. And so I wonder whether there's something similar going on with Mario and and film. I feel like Mario, although he seems like the outsider in his family, because he's the one that can't do sports and seems to be a big deal. So like on 155, it says, uh, if Hal fulfills his new promise in tennis and makes it all the way to the show, Mario will be the only one of the Incandenza children not wildly successful as a professional athlete. No one who knows Mario could imagine that this fact would ever occur to him. And then it says, Oren Mario and Hal's late father was revered as a genius in his original profession, which was physics, right? Mm-hmm. Without anybody ever realizing what he really turned out to be a genius at, even he himself, at least not while he was alive, which we assume is referring to his film work. 
I imagine so. Which is perhaps bona fidely tragic, but also as far as Mario's concerned, ultimately all right, if that's the way things unfolded. I just, I feel like Mario thinks a lot about his father's film work. And it, it almost implies to me that Mario has this understanding that whatever his dad was doing in the world of film and optics and I don't know what he was doing, but that Mario somehow recognizes it as like genius, maybe more than others do. He probably has a better idea of what it was that he was working on and how he was working on it. And others would see him, his big success in the world of physics, but that Mario realizes that it was the film piece. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. why he finds it so interesting. That was my Mm -hmm. take. I could see that. Yeah. So this is when we learn more about Pemulus. Well, they say he's the the person with the highest IQ score who's ever been on academic probation at Enfield. Right. Uh, Right. The consensus is that he could be a better tennis player than he is if he was more willing to work on it. Right. That sounds familiar in terms of, like, every underachieving student I've ever heard of. Mm -hmm. Right. If you just applied yourself. Uh, we also have uh, mention here of, uh, it's in an in a end note, we have mention of Eschaton. They say that Pemulus is very good at Eschaton, uh, which is some kind of a tennis court-based game that's adapted from a computer game, is my understanding. It yeah. sounds to me like Risk, or like yeah. it could be Risk, like or a, it reminds me of War Games. Right. Yeah. Would you like to play thermonuclear war? Yes, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. We don't get any of the specifics here, but it sounds like they mention it in the context of saying that Pemulus is very good at this game, and that's the evidence mm-hmm. that he could be really good at tennis. So there's got to be some kind of physical component or some sort yeah. of skill-based, physical skill-based component here. Or strategy. Yeah. This is also, I believe, the first mention of a computer game in this book. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. It's more of a takeoff of a computer game, too. So it's not exactly right. Right. Just sitting and. It's a tennis court modified version of the Endsat Rom Run nuclear conflagration game. Right. Um, Rom Run. Rom meaning read-only memory. So like a, I guess like a CD-ROM or I'm imagining like a solid state cartridge, sort of like a Nintendo cartridge or something. I'm just fascinated that in a, a culture that seems so obsessed with TV sets and mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and entertainment competition. And, competition. and competition, that that video gaming is almost non-existent. Right. It seems right. like even when it's mentioned here, it seems like more a novelty than a thing that people actually spend a lot of time on right like when the buddies get together for their meetings you would think that it it would make more sense to me that they're sitting around playing video games together yeah yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of disappointing to me that david foster wallace didn't imagine that because i'd love to know what kind of like visually stunning hyper realistic just bizarre video games would exist in in this world in onan I was just going to say, it's interesting, you have Pemulus on the one hand and Hal on the other. So you had Hal, who 
came to Enfield and yeah, he could play tennis, but really his gift was that he's like this lexical genius. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a, you mm-hmm. know, he's a, he's a genius in the area of language and he could play tennis. So you have Pemulus who came as this exceptionally fine tennis player. The reason he got yeah. noticed was for his tennis and he was yeah. this really rising star. But now Pemulus has hit the ceiling, it seems, in his mm-hmm. tennis. Or a plateau. With his science going off, you know, they say that's what his real strength is. And then you have Hal, who came in as a kind of so-so tennis player. He maybe was a little better than average, but probably he mm-hmm. got in because of his because it's his family's school. Right, right. Uh, mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, as a teenager, all of a sudden his skills are taking off. In yeah, tennis. he's 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 really he good. I, I like that word. It was. Uh, Erumpent? Erumpent. Erumpent, yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize how good Hal was. Like, I thought that he was, he was, I I mean, the way his play is described sounds like he's a very good tennis player, but there are a lot of very good tennis players in the world, and he's one of them. But he is, he's ranked number four nationally in under 18. Which also, I didn't get that when he was in the dean's office trying to win his scholarship in Arizona right. either. Right. I, I got that. I got more the impression of what, how you were describing him, that he was, yeah, he's a pretty good tennis player and he'd be yeah. a good addition. But really what they meant is you'd have one of the very best young tennis yes. players if you get this kid here at your school. Before we move on, I do want to also highlight one of the things about this section about Pemulus and, and his access to the geometrical optics equipment in the tunnels is this description of his friendship with Mario, which yeah. I, I also find yeah. really sweet and kind of yeah. unexpected that Mario is there to help him with his like optics fabrication work. Right. <laughs> and Pemulus helps out with the the kind of technical elements of filmmaking that Mario isn't quite as interested in or as competent in. Right. It seems like a really nice friendship that's kind of secret. It's secretive. Mm -hmm. I mean, other people don't have a clue what they're doing, right? It's just those two. Oh, and the other thing that's mentioned here in this section about Pemulus is that there's some mention of the shirts that he wears during competitive play. And and there's there's one that I'm, I'm so fascinated by, and I hope we learn more. But that he wears a shirt, an old shirt, that says, can you believe it? The Supreme Court just desecrated our flag. Yes. <laughs> Do you think what? that's a reference to the eagle eating it? Is it? I mean, it could be. Know. Maybe it Maybe. is. The other thing we learn is the the elaborate sort of uh, code system that Pemulus has set up to, oh, yeah. to, right. to yeah. sell drugs to people. It's very elaborate. Well, when they when they call him on the phone the first thing they have to say is they have to beg him to please commit a crime and he has to sort of like fake protest right uh one other question that i had about pemulus is um is pemulus a person of color unclear that is Um, unclear yeah i don't know well except that his his face his facial features yeah are described as like Irish. irish kind of but so, then it says skin the natal brown color of the shell of a quality nut. It's possible that he's uh, that he's like mixed race or yeah, or that you know. I mean, there there are plenty of Irish people with with darker complexions, and I don't know that I would call them a person of color. 
Right, yeah. I was also okay. wondering about suntan, too. Mm. We've heard mm-hmm. a lot about spending yeah, time outside. Yeah, mostly I was wondering, because um, if Pemulus is a POC, he's the first one that we've met that's not necessarily racialized, in a way. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that would have been interesting and nice kind to of see. refreshing maybe right yeah yeah <laughs> i would just like to say that at the end of that section i had written notes about the comments about james o and his fame and what he was famous for and not famous for and i i had the feeling after i read the whole section i thought mario knows something mm. <laughs> mario <laughs> knows something about his father yeah i would not be surprised don't know that Mario, seems to be... Mario has some insider knowledge just from being the one who people talk to because they think he's not he doesn't really get it all and yeah. and because he has access to his father's lab and, and was probably I, I, I suspect something. kind of a confidant of his father mm-hmm. when he was alive like they probably he could have been I I assume that his father like helped him put together this Bolex rig that allowed him to shoot and and probably there was a little like mentorship or something in that relationship. Yeah, there could have been. Um, Although we don't really know that. We don't know. That's yeah, pure speculation on my part. We don't know if his, I mean, it could be just as likely that Mario was just always hanging around and that his father never paid any attention to him. And yet Mario absorbed all this information that, that James Doe was spouting. And, and yeah. so now he's stepping up to do some of it himself because at yeah. the time he wasn't included. That could be just as likely. That yeah, and from what we know of James mm-hmm. O, I would say that's more likely that yeah. it's, it's not so much that James O was a mentor to Mario or anything, but more so that James O just kind of spoke around Mario, not really yeah. assuming that Mario was listening or understanding or anything, but more as like a sounding board. Uh, yeah. But Mario was actually paying attention the entire time. So should we talk winter 1960? Yeah. yeah, let's go to the 60s. It made me feel so much the same way I felt with USS Nelson Kent's story of her childhood. Oh. It was so similar to me. I could hardly I could hardly stand to read it. Well, it's it's really unsettling. I struggled with this the content and the undertone is very upsetting. Yes. Um, but it's also like a beautifully written monologue. Um, yeah. and, and, and so it, I kept thinking about the craft involved in writing this. I don't know. It was those, the two kind of extremes of like, oh, this is terrible. And it's uh-huh. such good writing. Uh-huh. Yeah. It feels like it's written like a one act play or something, uh, just in terms of the, the dramatic pacing of it, the way that information is dispensed to us and the right. way that the the tone of the conversation shifts over time it starts out like almost heartwarming or encouraging or something but then you get to this really uh horrifying image of of him tearing open the tennis ball that feels yeah. like hugely threatening yes and the oft mentioned flask Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought it had creepy, sexual, abusive overtones to it. Some of oh. the language. I can see that. Yeah. 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 And I guess that's why it made me feel like it was sort of the same sort of situation as as Millicent Kent. You mm-hmm. know, that I, I had the same feeling about her father, that he wasn't, mm-hmm. it didn't say he's sexually abusing her. And yet 
some of the images of the, you know, put stuffing himself into her clothing and uh, and then, mm. and this whole flask thing bothered me in the same way. I definitely didn't get that. You um, should read it again and think about it. <laughs> I don't know that I want to because yeah, I didn't not. love reading yeah. this section. Yeah. Um, on 159, there's a James Sr. talking about how to open up the garage door and mm -hmm. uh, count the squares, maybe. Let's see you treat this door like a lady, son. Mm. And this child is 10 years old. 10 years <laughs> old, right. Also, the way that James Sr. talks about his wife, mm -hmm. he's very dismissive. Yeah, he is absolutely, he, is very... she, he, he just has total disdain for her. Disdain for her and disdain for the relationship she has with her son. Yeah. Right. Too. I have to suspect that James O's relationship with his mother was probably also not healthy, but in very different ways. But she yeah. at least had yeah. she at least had some interest in who he actually was instead of who she wanted him to be. When the dad tells James O to put down that book, you know the big heavy, he's got this this enormous oh, yeah. uh, science book. I can't mm -hmm. remember what it was that he was. Something about yeah. optics. Something, right. yeah. And you get the you get the sense that his mother knows that that's where his skills and his interests lies. He's not all in on the tennis. Although, you know, he kind of at the beginning he does kind of come across as like he's willing to like. Right? Doesn't his dad tell him basically that, yeah, you've never played tennis yet. You're 10 and you still haven't <laughs> played tennis. But as soon as you pick up the racket, you're going to be great because it's all right. inside of you. It's all right there. So there you do get a little of the sense that he's not he's not totally discounting that his father could be right. So based on the, the story that his father tells about his father and the tennis injury... And, and how he was a disappointment and he would right. never be truly great. Do you think that James O's father is doing to him uh, the same thing that James O goes on to do by starting Enfield Tennis Academy? Oh, definitely. I see it as like this repeating generational pattern that, you know, the disappointed and disapproving father... Uh, parents replaying the mistakes of their parents. Uh, my dream failed and... Now you could live out my dream and nobody ever living up to what their father thought they should be or what they could be and falling short and then doing the same darn thing to your own kid. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'd agree. That's instilling in your children what you're unable to do, but also not really being able to communicate with your children, not really being able to ask the kid what the kid wants to do and all of that. Um, I think we definitely get a lot of similarities between how James O interacts with Hal and how um, James O's father interacts with him. In addition, though, ETA kind of sets up the ability for students to do the tennis thing, but also do the things that they're actually interested in, as we see mm -hmm. with Pemulus. And as we see with Hal to an extent. I think we can see it with um, Pamulus and with Mario and everything, but that's because what they're interested in is film. 
and I feel like and somewhat ETA. related to well, pemul- James no, Pemulus is Pemulus is interested in physics, like math well, and physics. Yeah, physics, yeah, physics, uh, but also kind of like optics and yeah. um, lens work and things like that. So it's still something that James O was interested in. Um, I'm yeah. less convinced that Hal is able to really do what he wants to do. I mean, unless what Hal really wants to do is smoke marijuana. Um, but and that be a, a literary genius. Right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's interested in lexicography. And that, I mean, there's there's a lot of that in the curriculum. They mentioned there's three grammar classes that all right. the ETA students have right. to take. Yeah. Off, off Avril. Um, right. And, yeah. I mean, we don't know too much about Avril yet. Um, or right. Avril, right. So, so this I is... I feel like that's kind of her... Uh, connection to the academy for right. sure, and She's, this is so, the- so the so Enfield has that piece because of her, and it's got the physics and film piece because of James O. But like, you don't hear of it having a great art program. That's <laughs> this true. Is true. Or, yeah, yeah, or music or, or right. theater. So it's significantly real theater. Given it's the- like it's like really a reflection of the of the incandenzas. It is almost like the tennis is an excuse somehow because to get students there for the other pieces, I don't know. It se- it does seem weird that, I mean, it's a tennis academy. You'd think that, yeah. well, yes, they have to educate their kids, um, right? They're required to, to provide <laughs> education mm-hmm. in, in <laughs> other areas besides tennis, but you would think. They're certainly be... not doing the bare minimum. Like they no, have, no, no, they no. have They're pedagogical ideas that that span that extend beyond They're sports way education. Beyond just tennis. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's maybe it's because they feel like that whole issue of of tennis as a preparation for life. Maybe they really think that if they do rigorous training and really push all the pieces of what makes someone a good tennis player, that in in return, that will make them physicists and grammaticists. <laughs> you know, maybe that maybe that actually, it's just a means to an end that it's, although it seems like you're trying to produce these great tennis players, maybe their point would be that the structure that it takes and the determination that it takes to become a great tennis player will also make them great in chosen fields. I mean, that's the point that I've made to many a wary parent of somebody who wants to be a film major. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Is that just because you major in film doesn't mean you're going to try and do that as your primary profession and that the skills that a film program gives you are applicable in different ways. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it's so kind of like yes. James, James O, who was a tennis player, right? And used that as a vehicle to escape from his father and eventually to become a physicist and world-renowned. Mm-hmm. But that, mm-hmm. that went through the tennis as a means to an end and not the tennis itself. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that young James O in Candenza wears a bow tie and young yeah. Hal in Candenza wears a bow tie. Mm. That's adorable. Yeah. Also interesting that young James, who's only 10, is almost six feet tall and he has yes. a big head. That's yes. Andy has yeah. a big head. Adorable. 
So one other thing that I found really interesting is that there's been mentioned before this that James O's father had an axe to grind against method acting. Um, right, they bring up Marlon Brando, Brando and, and, again. and he seems almost obsessed with Marlon Brando. Mm -hmm, One does. of the things that I find most interesting about this is that he, so he has great disdain for method acting in general, and particularly the way his wife seems to apply right. it to her philosophy of living. Right. Um, but he has a corresponding extreme respect for the practice that Marlon Brando engages in. Does he right. not draw that parallel? So I think that his point is that other method actors don't understand the work that Marlon Brando's doing to be good. Mm. Um, he says, let me find it here. Um, She's never intuited the gentle and cunning economy behind this man's, quote, harsh, sloppy, unstudied approach to objects. The way he'd oh so clearly practiced a chair's back leg tilt over and over. Marlon Brando felt himself as body so keenly he'd no need for manner. She never sees that in his, quote, careless way he actually reached, touched whatever he touched as if it were part of him, of his own body. The world he only seemed to manhandle was for him sentient, feeling. It's kind of like the, the whole Enfield uh, approach to tennis and the repetition until, it, until you don't mm. have to think about it anymore. He would say probably, the father would say that Marlon Brando, in order to look so nonchalant tipping back on his chair, he had to practice it over mm -hmm. and over and over and over and over and over until he didn't have to think about balancing on the back right. legs of his chair. Because right. if he mm -hmm. had to think about it, then it wouldn't look uh, careless and, uh, you know. Which is, it, you know, yeah. for, from, from my limited exposure to method-based acting pedagogy is one of the things that they really hammer is like repetition and uh, like exercises that encourage you to repeat things until they come almost reflexively. Yeah. Huh. This also reminds me a lot of, um, it's a film and a story. Vinny, you might be familiar with this. I feel like it's a film school staple. Uh, the Discipline of D.E., have you seen that? It's an early um, Gus Van Sant short film. Oh, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. It's based on a William S. Burroughs story. Um, it's almost like an instructional film where there's mm. a narrator describing these various actions that the the protagonist is doing. And they're simple everyday actions like standing up and turning off a lamp or walking across the room and tripping on the rug. But the point of the narration is that there's this discipline called DE, which I think stands for doing everything, which involves practice and careful repetition. Uh, and if you stumble over something or get something wrong, you need to go back and do it again until you get it right so that you learn the muscle memory about how to walk across the room without tripping on the rug or how to stand up and turn off the desk lamp in one fluid motion. In this section, he also is telling James O that they're moving, right? They're going back out to California and he's going to take yes. one, last, yeah. one last run at his film career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even though he can't wear shorts. How is that related to your film career? Well, he mentions one person he knows who is making a living in, like, beach movies and how he kind of resents that. Oh, okay. So much of this is about physicality, like inhabiting your body. A lot of the talk about driving a car, he also uh -huh. 
discusses as being like a, a, a big metal body right. um, that, that you learn how to control with the same precision that a tennis player controls their muscles. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he says a thing here that I feel like is maybe thematically important. He says, son, you're a body, son. That quick little scientific prodigy's mind she's so proud of and won't quit twittering about. Son, it's just neural spasms. Those thoughts in your mind are just the sound of your head revving. And head is still just body, Jim. Commit this to memory. Head is body. Right. Which I was thinking about in the context of his uh, horrifying method of suicide. uh, that, That maybe there's some sort of a referendum on head and body there. The chapter was creepy and sad. It's sad about, you know, this father son relationship that was so messed up. And it's hard to like James O's father in this chapter. Mm -hmm. And yet he says, uh, talent is its own expectation. Jim, you either live up to it or it waves a hanky receding forever. I'm just afraid of having a tombstone that says, here lies a promising old man. You know, like mm-hmm. it's potential may be worse than none. Like I having, love if that you line. feel, yeah. I mean, that's a human condition. I think that we all. I mean, do you ever feel like you've achieved enough? Right. Not not for anybody else, but just for yourself. Like, you know, there's always more stuff that you think you could do or that you want to do or that you should be able to figure out to do or you you know you want to somehow leave your mark in a way it's hard when you don't live up to your own idea of your high expectations for your own self it's yeah. it's really tough when you don't live up to them and yet the ironic thing is that he's saying this and feeling this about himself but but really, he's also telling his his 10-year-old son, and by the way, you don't live up to what I've hoped for you either. Right. <laughs> right. Is, you have potential yeah. and you haven't lived up to it and, either. And there's also this cognitive, di- there's, there's this cognitive dissonance, too, of him saying, like telling the story about his father and saying, uh-huh. like, the reason that I hate my father is because he said about me the same thing that I'm saying to you right now. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like... It's like saying, here I am, a grown man, and I'm kind of disgusted and despairing because I haven't lived up to the potential that I felt I had. And here you are, you're 10 years old, and you've already failed. (laughs) It Mm -hmm. didn't take you a whole lifetime. You failed to meet your potential by the age of 10, (laughs) buddy. (laughs) I think that's one of the just overarching tensions of growing into adulthood and a parent struggling to come to terms with their child growing up in a way that perhaps doesn't live yeah doesn't live up to their expectations or lives up to different expectations and h- how does a parent deal with that and then how does the child deal with knowing that they've disappointed their parents mhm mhm and why can't they turn it around it reminds me too though of like children of abusive parents often tend to go on to be abusive parents themselves. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. we kind of see the generational echoes of that emotional and potentially physical abuse here. Um, Definitely. And and I think that, you know, for, for a a kid of an abusive household, kind of the best you can hope for them is that they grow up to do a little bit better than their parents did. 
Right. Um, which I think you could say of James Owen Candenza. Like, he's not a great parent, but I, it's based on what information we have, I think you can say that he did a little better than his dad did with him. Yeah. That's cutting him a lot of slack, but, mm. you know, when you view it in the terms of this, like, cumulative inheritance of abuse, uh, I don't know. I'm, I might be willing to cut him that slack. I just had this kind of another thought about Millicent Kent. Sorry, talking about Ooh. the abusive, the abusive mm-hmm. thing. Another parallel between her and James O. If if I truly believe that their fathers were in in rather different ways, and yet still somehow abusive, which is what I think, and not really spelled out in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I I admit that. But they also both were kids then that that took the first chance they got to get away from their yeah. fathers yeah. to take off. You know, both of them did that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need to and, get out of here. Yeah. And both of them did that through tennis. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and in a way that's that desire to escape to me is a little hopeful that the person who realizes that they need to escape is a little bit ahead of their parent that they're escaping because they at least they at least understand somehow that it's not it's not good and it's not right and they need yeah. to get out of there where the the kids that are really beaten down by constant parental abuse are the ones who end up feeling like they really deserve it mm-hmm. you know mm. it is maddening cuz these incandens i mean they're they're smart people obviously and yet they're so unable to see. And let's just say that the story of James O's father sliding across the tennis court on his knees is oh, quite Lord, disgustingly yeah, this... graphic and horrifying. Mm-hmm. And he also, so I want to, I want to keep my finger on this as we go. His obsessive hatred of black widow spiders and yes. his insistence yes. that they're everywhere. In uh, fact, so James James O thought maybe he skidded on a spider that fell out of the tree, right? Right. Wasn't that, no, that's that's what his father says. He thinks oh, I mean, maybe his father, he slipped what on his one. father, excuse me. Yes, yeah. his father um, thought maybe he skidded skidded on a So the spider. Uh, black widow spider is its scientific name is is it Laprodectus mactans or something like that? Something like that. Um, mm-hmm. James O made a film with that title. Oh. Um, and there's, I don't know, they, they seem to come up with some frequency in the context yes. of Arizona, particularly. Um, right. So James O had a certain love for Arizona, right? Like he was, he seemed to have an affinity for the place. I think so. Yeah. And it so, kind of, it kind of, brings that up when his father is talking about that they're going to move. We're going to move back to California and that, right. that James O is having to leave behind uh, things that he loves there in Arizona. Yes, but I think I, in, in the off. section where we first meet Oren, I think there's some narration that explains that James O liked the climate and he just liked the place. Right. Um, whereas right. James O's father apparently hates it and hates spiders. And also Oren kind of hates the place and and hates bugs and and spiders. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I thought that this was so sad because it all starts out as, you know, the father was getting ready to take James O out for his first try at tennis, right? He's going to mm-hmm. going to mm-hmm. try it and they never get there. 
the moment is destroyed before they ever can get in the car and go. It is yeah. interesting. So here he is. He's 10 years old and he's never played tennis yet, but but he does play tennis eventually. Uh, yeah, at some point he he picks up the, the tennis racket. good enough and good, right? He's yeah. a good tennis player. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe his father is on to but something But never there. truly great. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do if you were the mother? Well, this is one question that I have because where are the mothers? So mu- in all exactly, this? so much of this book is about uh, fathers, father, and fathers and sons, and we see very little manifestation of like mother-son or or mother-child relationships here. Right, you um, get these little hints yeah. that the mothers are a little more tuned into their kids. I mean, you've got Avril with her grammar interest and Hal's skill in that area. You've got. Uh, well, James in this O's chapter, father, you got James O's mom recognizing his interest in physics and, and yeah, you even have um, the must elder be getting James him the O's. books and yeah, mother yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the fathers are all—they're not only abusive to their children, but they're really dismissive of their wives in a way. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, or mm-hmm. critical, hypercritical, or yeah. It makes something. me very curious what kind of relationship James O had with Avril. Right, because yeah. we've, we've right. we kind of we've learned about them separately, but we don't know much. I, I mean, Mom, you were talking yeah. about this the other week that like we don't know how this household worked, right? Uh, and and we definitely don't know anything about how James O and Avril got along with right. each other. How did they meet? What was it about the other one? That well, would he make made them end up together? in his filmography. He made a film called Union of Grammarians in Cambridge or something like You're that. Right. Yeah. yeah. That I think was related to the their the, meeting. Yeah, Avril's pursuits. It's a mystery. The Incandenza family remains a mystery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're back to Pemulus, and he's in Inman Square in Cambridge. Presumably, he's, he's, this there, drug, right? he's there to do a drug deal. The incredibly potent DMZ. And yeah. they, say, they say that it's synthesized from an obscure mold that only grows on other molds, which of course <laughs> yes. made me think, I ate something? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, right. the five-year-old Hal coming out of the basement mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. this moldy stuff. Sure. Yeah, yeah or I was thinking about later, or you know, I was thinking about this too. Like the effects of the drug are described here. Also, that the ingester perceives his relation to the ordinary flow of time as radically and euphorically altered. And that end note describes an Italian lithographer who ingested DMC and made a lithograph comparing himself. Uh, to a piece of like futurist oh, okay. sculpture, plowing at yeah. high nottage through time itself, kinetic even in stasis, plowing temporarily ahead with time coming off him like water in sprays and wakes. It just feels like this is going to be important. Yes. It, the, yeah. the drug itself seems important here. Oh, I yeah. Think. No, it's I, mean, not, I think it's it's not your normal thing that gets passed around. At yeah. And it's ETA. so it's. It's also, I think, important that it's established as being an incredibly powerful drug. Right, incredibly potent. Um, not an opiate, uh, but like an incredibly potent hallucinogen. Vinny, it sounded like you had something to say. Sort of. Um, I mean, for me, it's more like the very end of this, that there's kind of just this building sense of dread for me. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially once we get that Hal uh is answering the phone and asking 
uh, Pemulus to commit a crime, which means that Hal is going to be buying this drug. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, especially because we still don't quite know what led to Hal's breakdown. Right. Is this it? Right. Is this going to be it? Right. Because he's at the top of his game, his tennis game here, right? He's, things are going really well for him. Uh, and now this this drug is appearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, Pemulus must Pemulus clearly kind of targeted Hal as potentially uh, a buyer. Yeah. Of this mm-hmm. particular drug, because he's the first one that that gets in touch with him. Right. He's waiting. He's waiting for. Pemulus he's waiting to by get the back. phone, like like Erdetti. Right. Yeah, and, and he he mm-hmm. waits until the third ring to answer very purposefully. Right. Also, is anyone going to say it? Oh, uh, he's he- also. I don't know if you noticed. He's also reading Hamlet. Does someone have thunder, or is that something? Else? <laughs> oh, there we go again. Yeah. I'm sorry, I fell for it again. <laughs> so annoying. <laughs> Which I think is a little on the nose. I did some extracurricular research on this uh, softcore Alexandrian mosaic. Mm, yes, the Byzantine erotica. Is anybody mm. interested in hearing about that? Yes, yes. Yeah. absolutely. Okay, friends, let me tell you that that exact mosaic does not exist. Really? At least uh-huh. according to Google. So, I found a post on the Infinite Summer Forum discussion board from 2009. It sounds like it relates to Hal's interest in Byzantine erotica. Um, And it sounds like a pretty standard art history subject. But we did talk early on about Onan. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read from this post, and thank you to poster Fichte. Onan, as everybody knows, was killed by God for the heinous crime of spilling his seed upon the ground. This, throughout history, has associated him with masturbation. And this poster agrees that when David Foster Wallace mentions Onan, that connotation is implied. But that's not why God was mad at Onan. If you actually read the whole sordid story in Genesis 38, when God killed Onan's brother for reasons which are obscure, and I did read it, and it doesn't say, it just says that he was a bad person, so God's like, dead. Uh, (laughs) Leaving his widow childless, it was the custom that Onan was required to marry her and father a child upon her. Does that sound like Hamlet, anybody? This child would legally be his brother's. Onan didn't want any children who weren't legally his, so Onan went in to his brother's wife, but pulled out early and spilled his seed on the ground. So Onan's real sin was refusing to consummate this type of marriage. Yes. Mm. So Hmm. once God killed Onan... This widow had to wait for the remaining brother, there, there were three, uh, to grow up, but she got tired of waiting, put on a veil, 
and tricked Onan's father into having sex with her. So a painting of this type of marriage might be Onan's father banging his son's wife, but the marriage of a widow to a relative of her former husband or dead husband would have been feels Collins. very Hamlet to me. That sounds yes. Hamlet-y. Yeah. So Brianna, you're quite familiar with Hamlet. I'm familiar-ish with Hamlet. Uh, yeah, Mom, I'm say how, familiar. I'm a yeah. little familiar. I'm rusty on Hamlet. Yeah. Um, oh, we are here to help. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a reason that I have this this sound effect on deck and ready to go at all times. <laughs> yeah, where was it? You just said it and it didn't happen. Well, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to be a little time. more. Let's let's give someone okay. else a chance to. Oh, Hamlet. There. Uh, if I if I did it every time, we would it would just there it would just, there would, would be, be episodes annoying. where I think it would be nonstop. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I see some real strong parallels to Hamlet in the biographies in Infinite Jest. Um, we have uh, Avril and Candenza. Her husband commits suicide or dies in some way, and then CT is her brother. But the two of them are now kind of the in charge of. They're united in in running the academy now that James O is no longer living. Yes. Yeah. Um, Which feels kind of like. What's the Queen's name? Gertrude. Gertrude and Claudius. And I think that. So there are other things that reference hamlet throughout the book (laughs) the title the title the title indeed this is also relevant because james o in candenza's production company is called poor yorick entertainment right Mm. alas poor yorick i knew him horatio a fellow of infinite jest of most excellent fancy he hath borne me on his back a thousand times and now how abhorred in my imagination it is. My gorge rims at it. Here hung those lips that I have kissed. I know not how oft. Where be your jibes now, your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar? Not one now to mock your own grinning? Quite chap-fallen? Now get you to my lady's chamber and tell her, let her paint an inch thick to this favor she must come. Make her laugh at that. Prithee, Horatio, tell me one thing. So this is, the the context for this is that Hamlet's in the graveyard and he's found the skull of the, like the jester, Yorick? Yeah, Yeah, the court jester Um, clown. mm -hmm. And is like reflecting on, here was, here this person was who made me so happy and now he's just a, just a skull. Um, which is also evocative of that image in the first chapter where Hal's thinking about um, him and Don Gately digging up his father's head. Uh-huh. So I, mm. I don't know how all these things connect, but it seems like there's this really strong undercurrent of images that evoke Hamlet in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I should read it now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about reading in tandem to Infinite Jest this time around, and I thought, "Mm." maybe too much. (laughs) Yeah, too hard. Andrew, you mentioned this. This was a person that made me laugh, and now it's just 
you're just a skull. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's something to be said that parallels to uh, the you're just a body and a head is just body. Yeah. And oh, um, okay. that whole reflection in James Sr.'s monologue. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's another thing that I think that we'll probably come back to time and again is like, how how does this thing that we're reading point at Hamlet and like, why is it pointing at Hamlet? I'm not mm. convinced that this is a retelling of Hamlet. Yeah, I'm not convinced either. But there is something about like Hamlet being this famous hero of inaction um, mm-hmm. You know, is Hal similarly a, a hero of inaction? This reference to Riverside Hamlet on page 171 is uh-huh. like David Foster Wallace uh, putting neon lights around yeah. Hamlet and saying, look at me. So one other thing that's mentioned briefly in this chapter or this section of the chapter that we've read is Madam Psychosis. Yes. DMZ is sometimes also referred to in some metro Boston chemical circles as Madame Psychosis after a popular very early morning cult radio personality on MIT's student-run radio station. Yes. Um, so that's a great name. I love the name Madame Psychosis. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah. Also, she was an actress in oh, yes. uh, James O's film. Yes, a, a, a few of them towards the mm-hmm. end of his career, as I recall. And Mario and another ETA student are uh, avid listeners of her show. Yeah, and that's where we stop. Yeah. We stop. I'm worried about Hal when we yes. stop. This is like the mm-hmm. closest to a cliffhanger, I think, that yeah. we've stopped at. <laughs> I feel like I'm wringing my hands over Hal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, also, I also had this feeling like, I also wonder if Pemulus has some motive, uh, why, 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 why is he connecting Hal with this, with the DMZ? Well, because he's a paying customer. I, I think it, it starts to feel a little mucky because you have Pemulus. So you have, you have James O's kids, right? We don't, we know a little bit about Oren. We're learning more about Hal and Mario than we know about Oren. You've got Mario who's digging around down in his lab with his film stuff, with his equipment. You've got, you've got, got Pemulus down there too. There are things that Pemulus knows about James O that probably Hal doesn't know. It's almost like Pemulus mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. somehow worming his way into the family, kind mm-hmm. of. Like he has yeah. knowledge, he has knowledge, inner, inner working knowledge of the Incandenza clan somehow. I don't know. Does he have any reason not to wish how well? He does seem very Machiavellian in a lot of ways. And, and maybe, yeah, I don't know what he would stand to gain. Hal is surpassing him all of a sudden in tennis when he, when Pemulus used to be better than Hal. Maybe. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't, yeah, that, he doesn't but... seem very invested in that. Yeah. No, I mean, you don't even have to be invested in it to be kind of pissed off by, you know, like... Uh, I don't know. I mean, he doesn't seem terribly competitive. Maybe that's just my yeah. read of it, but... Yeah. I don't know. That's my read of it, too. That Right. I mean, that's the only reason I could think of for Pemulus to wish ill on Hal, but at the same mm. time, I don't get the feeling that that's that important to Pemulus. The only reason it would be important would be for Pemulus to continue going to ETA. Right. Yeah. 
But Hal like, seems to have, Hal's invested a lot in making sure that Pemulus stays at ETA. Hmm. Right. Hal, Hal did all of Pemulus's homework for three is, grammar and, classes. And why, and why is Hal doing that? Is Hal doing that because Pemulus is his friend or because Pemulus gets him his drugs? Probably some of Can't both. Can't it be both? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't think that Pemulus would, like his motive wouldn't be to get even with Hal for all of a sudden being better than him in tennis, but he might think it was funny if he, if he got I a don't, little, I don't know. I think I that you're know. making Pemulus out to be more sinister than he really is. I don't is. really think he's sinister. No, I don't so think he's I, sinister. I, I would I could not see say that him, I think he's sinister, but he might I have s- some... I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't see any reason for that. I think that he's probably like... You know, like many teenage boys who are friends with other teenage boys, he's kind of a sociopath. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just that's just what it is. Like, like I, I could imagine him not particularly caring if something bad happened to Hal or being like, well, these are the stakes. It's dangerous. We're playing around and something bad might happen. Uh, but I don't think that he's scheming. He might not like, be he's sorry not a, if Hal kind of got a little got a little setback. I guess sure. is more what I'm sure. thinking. Not that, not that he would want to, Malicious like, wouldn't rise to no. the level of wanting to destroy Hal or anything like that. But that, but that he might get a slight uh, satisfaction in if Hal had a, a little setback somewhere. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, and he'd probably still be Hal's friend. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not saying he wouldn't be his friend. I'm just saying, yeah. you know, friendship is complicated. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> Maybe I'm just overly protective of Hal. <laughs> I want Hal to be okay. I mean, if we're drawing parallels to Hamlet, and if Hal is the perhaps Hamlet stand-in, uh, Hamlet doesn't end terribly well for right. Hamlet. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine things ending well for any of these people, honestly, mm-hmm. in this book. Unless maybe Mario. Maybe things could end well for Mario. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. hopefully. Going back to Hamlet comparisons, I mean, Mario could be like a um, Horatio. Yeah, except no, never mind, because Horatio Horatio lives. lives. Yeah, Horatio lives at the end, and Horatio is the person who basically everybody talks to, and Horatio kind of listens to everybody, uh, but nobody really Mm -hmm. gives much thought to Horatio. Yeah, Horatio yeah. is the one who says Mario, goodnight, yes. my sweet prince. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll be talking about pages 172 to 198. Our music is by David Nichols. Listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. Uh, does anyone have anything to say or to plug? Um, as always, you can check me out on Instagram, uh, me and my painting, at CardboardVV. Excellent. Uh, my website is agingrick.com. There's nothing of relevance on there. <laughs> So I've been keeping a timeline and a character list for making sense of Infinite Jest. You can access that through my website, which is briannacratz.com. Hooray! Hmm. I didn't know you had a website. Now I have to go look. (laughs) I I myself, I don't have a website. Because I'm old. That's fine. It's okay to not have a website. I'm old yeah. and I have no website. And yeah, I, I, I only feel have like a Brianna, website. Brianna and Vinny and I are of this sort of pocket generation where it was expected that we have websites, but people who are older and younger than us see no point in them whatsoever. <laughs> uh, okay, thanks for listening. And remember, in this time of crisis and upheaval, please commit a crime. Goodbye. <laughs> mm-hmm.
I'm having a better time reading Eat Just this time. Oh, good. good. So I'm not ready to throw it in the trash or anything. Would you oh, still okay. come on the podcast if you threw it in the trash? Sure. I would you just could just jump in. Like I, read yeah. it. I, I don't know what you guys like are talking it. about, but this is garbage. <laughs> <laughs>